Everything Co-op. Bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. Yeah, I have a question for you this morning. How does your community rank in terms of opportunities for its young folk or people going into the workforce? What kind of opportunities do they have? Do you have any sense how Washington, D.C. or Montgomery County compare to other communities in the nation? Well, today in studio, we have Ms. Monique Reiser, Executive Director of Opportunity Nation, who is going to talk about their index that rates different communities. Good morning, Monique. Good morning, Vernon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming in. It's Happy an absolute to be here. pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So what is Opportunity Nation? So thank you so much for having me. Um, we're really excited to appear today. Opportunity Nation is a national bipartisan campaign essentially working to restore the promise of the American dream. And we do that by working to ensure that everybody, no matter where they're born, has an equal opportunity to succeed. Really the fundamentals of what this country is all about. We work with a coalition of 350 organizations that are uh, primarily other nonprofit organizations, but also educators like heads of community colleges and businesses like some of your listeners. Um, we also work on uh, policy advocacy at the federal level, particularly on issues that will increase educational opportunities for children and young adults, and of course, increase opportunities to work and what we call pathways, career pathways for young people. Um, and then, of course, we do our research uh, through the Opportunity Index and other research um, that the index has informed as well. So what is this Opportunity Index? The Opportunity Index is essentially a way to define opportunity. Um, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. We often think of the uh, consumer price index or what the unemployment rate when we think of how the country's doing. So we worked with a research partner to develop an index that would define opportunity along 16 indicators. So 16 different data points on, uh, for example, traditional economic measures like what the unemployment rate is, but also non-traditional indicators such as what is the rate of affordable, what is the rate of housing ownership in a community, or what is the rate of disconnected youth in a community. So we really looked at comprehensively what are some of the factors in a community that can expand opportunity or restrict opportunity and indicators on which community members could change. So we can increase the number of children attending preschool. We can increase high school graduation rates. We can work on ensuring more people get jobs and live in safe neighborhoods. These are all different indicators that are included in the index. So we take these indicators working with, um, uh, this year we are working with Child Trends as a research partner. We create a score 
and we rank every state on how they're doing on opportunity, and we grade every county. So over the past six years, you can start to see some trends on how different communities are doing, both at the national level, how we're doing as a country, but also more at the local level, down to the county level, how individual communities are faring along all these indicators and their overall opportunity score. Wow. All states, all counties yes. in the United States. 2,700 counties. covers 99% of the population. 2,700, 2,700 counties. Correct. 99% of the population you yes. cover on these 16 indices. Yes, Variables. Correct. Yes. To get some sense of how folks are doing. So affordable housing, preschool, safety, higher education, disconnected youth. Wow. wow. Okay. I don't get all of this information. So it is a Herculean effort, uh, which is why we work with partners like Child Trends, and um, we also re have really appreciated the work of Measure of America, who helped develop this. Um, so we've relied on some really smart what partners. What was that term? What America? A Measure of America is a, a research. Measure of America is a research partner of ours that had helped create the index. Um, so we've worked with a lot of different research partners to essentially gather all the data, which is all publicly available from primarily the Census Bureau, but also Department of Justice statistics, Health and Human Service statistics, um, Department of Education statistics. So all publicly available data that we essentially do fancy math with to equalize these different indicators and create a score. So it's a lot of data gathering and then a lot of math and then some marketing to help get the information out. So the index has 16, and you got you got it broken down between economy, education, and community. Yes. Okay. So we we organize these 16 indicators into those three what we call dimensions, um, and so you can look at the score of each dimension and how that has gone up or down, and then you can dig deeper into what specific indicators are driving scores up or down. Okay. So under economy, jobs, unemployment rate, no, wages, poverty inequality yes so assets let me get the other two sure. the, so inequality assets affordable housing and internet access yes so you've got under economy one two three four five six seven different variables under economy yes how do you measure inequality so I'm really interested in that because I'm a black male and I've, there's so much yes. inequality in my life. So I hear you, Vernon. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm a, a multiracial um, uh, single mother of color, so I certainly understand um, how inequality resonates, particularly with uh, communities of color. So the inequality measurement is the Gini index. This is a pretty standard way to measure inequality, and it essentially looks at the top 20% and the bottom 80% on their income levels. So the, what share of uh, income is held at the top 20% and the bottom 80%? And that's an important indicator because while some of the traditional economic indicators like unemployment and wages have improved, um, more people have jobs, unemployment's been down below or around 4%. Um, Wages have just started to improve, I believe, in starting in 2015, but inequality continues to increase. So it means um, the divide between the top 20% and the bottom 80% is increasing, and that's very concerning um, for a country with our values, right, that wants to provide equal opportunity for all. Well, that gap is getting larger. It is. And 
you talk about 20 and 80, but I talk about 1% and 99%. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's very, very interesting. I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but it's something like the one percenters, was it 60% of the income? And the rest of us divide 40%. It's some number like that. It's yeah. real, really well, way off. And when you start talking about wealth, Yes. How much, and that's why they can make so much money because they have the money, and this is a capitalistic society. And so, with their, yeah. when they invest their money, they don't have to work. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a complex problem. So the twenty eighty measure is is pretty. It's a pretty consistent way. At least the country has used that measure. And I think that um, a really good book to think to read if you want to better understand the twenty eighty dynamic is Richard Reeves' new book, Dream Hoarders. Um, Dream. Dream hoarders, Dream and he hoarders. makes the argument. He's a, a fellow at at Ber the Brookings Institution. He makes, and I should say, a friend of Opportunity Nations. He makes the argument that um, while the one percent certainly has accumulated a lot of wealth over the past few decades, the top twenty percent has a real role to play in providing more opportunity for others. So, um, I I. It was an interesting message because it was a call to action to more people. The top 1% is not a lot of people, which is, you know, a challenge that very few people hold a lot of the wealth. But the top 20% is many more. I don't have the numbers in front of me. And what I liked about what Richard was having to say was it was a call to action for more people to do something about this growing issue of, call it inequality, call, call it unequal access to opportunity. And I had to stop and think about this message he was putting up because I grew up in the bottom, uh, 80%. I grew up in a low-income family. Four of my five siblings didn't finish high school. I became a young single mother. And, you know, the chance of me making it to the top 20% statistically were, it's like 7% of children born in the bottom fifth make it to the top. Um, Seven percent many? That many? Yeah, yeah. I think that I'm few. <laughs> um, not many children today can be born in poverty and rise to the top 20%. So if you divide all the incomes into fifths, the top 20%. And I've gotten there, and it's because of investments like uh, a scholarship from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that invested in uh, children of color, young people of color who were talented and wanted to make a difference in their lives. So I think we have to remember that everybody has a role to play in increasing access to opportunity so that young people, other young people like I was, can pursue their dreams. And, yeah. and that's what we're trying to do at, Amer at Opportunity Nation. For me, you're still young. Thank you. <laughs> I just sent my son to college yesterday, so I'm, I'm not as young <laughs> as I might seem. And, and that's part of the story, right, is I was the first in my family to, to finish college. My mother was 19 when she had me and wasn't able to, to complete her education, her high education. It was an incredible moment, yes, two days ago, excuse me, to drop my son off, who I had when I was 20 years old and not sure what his future would be or what my future would be being sort of a young, unprepared mother. And, you know, we did it. He, he got Fantastic. there. And it took us, you know, 17 years, but we did it. <laughs> 19 years, we did it. So I'm from Bluefield, West Virginia. Yes. And I'm on a board of West Virginia Access to Higher Education to get more and more kids to go to college. Yes. And I grew up in Bluefield. And 
we always want to talk about who was the poorest growing up. Okay. <laughs> Let's my, play that game, Ernest. <laughs> but my father had a great job. He just did not know how to manage money. And yeah. he was a dreamer, so he was yeah. always gambling. Mm. And he was a bad gambler. Mm. Uh, he lost most of the time. So we didn't have money. But my mother went back to college mm. and became a teacher, and she was my role model. And I didn't find out until I was going through her papers after she passed that she had majored in business. But I couldn't see a woman in 1955 or so get a job in business in Bluefield, West Virginia. So she ended up teaching. And she did not know how to manage money either. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I try to really learn how to do is yeah. whatever comes in, how do you manage it and manage it well. Yeah, that's so important just as like a, a small side note. A lot of the efforts that we've worked on around youth employment have made a deliberate connection to financial management and just understanding the basics of opening a checking account, balancing your checkbook. We don't use checkbooks anymore, but balancing your, your money, your making account. investments. We have wonderful partners like Citibank and Bank of America and others like J.P. Morgan Chase from the financial world who have realized that when some people, young people, get that first job, that's the first time where they're having money that they now have to decide what to do with it, and they don't always know where to put it, when to cash it, how to spend it, how to save it. So that's been a really important part of some of our coalition members' work, in addition to, you know, the big, the big goal is to get young people jobs that put them on a long-term career trajectory. All right, we're going to take our first break. We'll be right back, the political campaign. More people had jobs, but less people, they were making less money. Yeah, I think overall, you know, people definitely did not feel like they were doing better. I think in the D.C. metro area in particular, if you look at our the index scores, there's disconnect. You know, you have communities with very high index scores, like Falls Church County, which is the, the best county in, in the nation. And then you have very low-scoring communities in different parts of, of Maryland. So people with very different living situations are living right next, they're clustered together, but they're living next door to each other. So we see literally some folks in the next neighborhood over who are doing very well while others are not. And I, I think people really feel that. Um, the ones who are living it, for sure, are feeling it every day. Okay, so I would love for you to meet a lady named Dame Pauline Green. She used to be the president of the International Cooperative Alliance. So I had her on the program once and she said that cooperatives gives people the opportunity to come out of poverty with dignity. And I really like that saying, to come out of poverty with dignity, because we can sit here and talk about having lived in poverty, yes. being poor. <laughs> uh, that was below poor. Uh, I hear you. Uh, and we'll talk more about that as we get into talking about co-ops. But that would be one of the reasons that I wanted you to be on this program, to talk about your indices and see how the co-op business model can help with this opportunity for people. So, let's go. Anything else you want to talk about? Internet access. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yes. So, internet access is essentially a utility now. So much of being able to work or go to school uh, depends on having not just internet access, but high-speed internet access. So, that measure is of high-speed internet access. We are updating our index for 2017 to look at broadband because now even faster speeds are the standard. And when you think about a community where you came from and where we met, there are many communities that don't have any internet access. So mm -hmm. think about the barriers to opportunity they have if they can't 
find information, complete an application to get a job, or complete a FAFSA to go to school, to go to uh, college, if they don't have internet access. Plus, there are just opportunities like in the makers movement, whether you're creating something and selling it on Etsy, you need internet, you need fast internet access. So it's just critical that people have it, which is why we include it in the index. Affordable housing? So that indicator looks at people who are spending less than 30% on their housing, just sort of as a standard measure. I think just for good financial practice, you shouldn't spend more than 30% of your income on housing. So somebody's spending less than 30%. That's good. That's great. Yes. <laughs> so what if somebody's spending 60% of their income on housing? I hope no one's spending 60% oh, of are. their income on housing. They and if, I mean, that is, yeah, I mean, I, I say that meaning... No one should have to spend 60% of their income on housing. You need to eat. You need to travel. You need to have a high quality of life. You know, when you talk about your friend um, and the idea of having dignity, I think that's where this is an issue. If you are toiling every day just to keep a roof over your head, which I remember my parents doing, you have a very low quality of life. You're probably not doing a job that gives you purpose if you are spending so much of your assets on housing and I'm I'm sort of just being anecdotal here. So it's it's not it's not great financial management. You're not able to save for retirement or school if you're spending that much money on housing and it's um it's a difficult challenge which I think you know well given your line of work. Yeah, I do property management and so that's why I know that there are people that now forty to sixty percent of your income, particularly in areas like New York City, yeah. Uh, California, almost all of California, but definitely LA, San Francisco, San Diego, and now DC. Yeah, so, I mean, part of that equation, of course, is wages and what people are making. And, you know, today, a high school diploma is not enough to sustain a family for most jobs. Mm -hmm. 65% of jobs by 2020 will require a a, a post-secondary credential, which is why it's one of our main goals is to increase the number of young people who... Uh, get some level of post-secondary education. doesn't have to be a bachelor's degree. That's definitely one way. It worked for me, but for many others, community college, trades, I think we're seeing a lot more conversation about the multiple ways that you can make a living and make a living that you love. I have a great example of that. Um, My neighbor served in the Marine Corps for 10 years, Mm -hmm. and when he got out with his GI Bill, you know, he got some education and then went to work for, you know, Beltway Bandit, as we say. But he realized he just didn't like what he was doing. So he went and became an apprentice and learned the skill of welding. And so that's what he does for a living now. And he's incredibly happy. He gets to work with his hands during the day and create things. And I just think that's a really good example of how we need to change the message around what type of work that we're doing. Got it. Got it so much. And that's what, with West Virginia Access to Higher Education, we've found things like just getting kids on a campus, a campus tour. Yes. That's so much to get them to see that they can be there. But we have David on the line. David, you have a question or comment? Oh, yeah, morning. I, I was listening with interest to, uh, to your guest. Can I ask first, is she an economist? I am not an economist. I studied uh, journalism and information systems management. So I had an interesting route to, to this job that I have here. I see. Well, yeah, if if you get into publicity, you've got to learn all those facts in order to disseminate them right, so that's good. The one thing I was going to correct, 
you were talking about 30% being a healthy amount for housing. Actually, I, when I studied uh, financial management and economics, it was said to be 25% was supposed to be the, the outside danger range. Mm -hmm. And that uh, 30%, I mean, that we're, we're using that one because HUD does that on their Section 8. Yes. And so if the economists of 50 years ago knew that 25% was a dangerous position and they're making the low income pay 30%, that it's actually, you know, it's like built-in sabotage, that you'll never have enough in case of, a, you know, somebody breaks their arm and mm -hmm. you've got to have quick medical care. Nobody's got enough cash because 30% is being sapped up by the uh, housing. But the other thing I was going to raise... You've heard the expression usury. Usury in almost every state in the nation, it by in Jimmy Carter's term, uh, that would have been the, the late 70s. I, I'm from the state of Missouri, and the usury rate was set at 7%. That's your interest so, rate. Yeah, and yeah. so nobody could lend money for higher than 7%. Uh, and in fact, again, when I took financial management, they told us that 3% was a dangerous position. <laughs> okay. And so 7% was, you know, even Big Tony and organized crime, you know, doing money lending, you know, they were doing 50% and, you know, 25% and we'll take your house and children. Uh, you know, that was why they came up with usury rates at, uh, at 7%. But recently down in Alabama, you know, they've got these payday lending places, and they had a council of churches that was trying to bring it down to some sane level. Right. And they were trying to set it at 43%. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? So it, it one of the, the real problems is, is that they never enforced, uh, you know, back in Jimmy Carter's day, one of the real reasons why he didn't get reelected was because David, interest rates were through the roof. Excuse me, David. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back. If you stay on, then we'll respond to what you said. We'll be right back. Everybody, this is Vernon Oaks. You know, uh, the National Corporate Bank sponsors this program just because they want to get people to understand what a cooperative is and how it works. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So I think NCB would really like this program, <laughs> Opportunity Nation, Opportunity Index. David, what was your question about users or usury? Oh, well, it was just that the uh, usury laws were really never enforced. And, uh, and so America got tricked during Jimmy Carter's term by almost every state in the nation refused to uh, enforce their own usury laws. And, um, and so they basically allowed the baby boom to just get cheated beyond belief. And, uh, for example, if you look at uh, VA, uh, like VA uh, soldiers' um, housing benefits, uh, for World War II and Korean War veterans, VA let them have a 1.5% uh, housing note, 1.5%. Uh, 
And um, I think the Vietnam vets got stuck with like 4% or something like that. I've forgotten the number that the Vietnam War vets got stuck with, but David, it was a one and a half in for uh, Korea. And David, David I, I got it, but I've got to get back to Miss Monique because we have a lot to cover. So oh, sure. thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, my Thanks pleasure. All right. Bye now. With that index, and usually what he's talking about is when people have to pay more and more of their dollars for loans or credit cards or whatever, then they have less money right. for everyday life. Yeah, and I mean, think this is, goes back to the conversation about about financial readiness. Young people, I mean, I, I think maybe just in the past, past few years, I realized the incredible impact of my my FICO score, you know, mm. that might get a lower interest rate if my score is higher. Well, it takes time and discipline to have a great credit score. And, you know, these are, these are, I think, complex, complicated pieces of information that unless a young person has someone in their life explaining this to them and helping them understand why even when they're 18, 19 years old, getting, a, getting their first job, making decisions about how they spend their money and building their fundamental spending habits, it's so important that they start that early. It's hard to turn that ship around once you've already gotten into a little bit of debt. So the financial readiness piece is incredibly important when we're talking about opportunity. Well, you just mentioned young people, but uh, everybody. Definitely uh, everybody. If they start young, hopefully when they get older, they've got some good uh, financial uh, muscles going. Being in property management, <laughs> I'm looking at people's credit scores yeah. every day. And yeah. no, it does not. It, it's hard. Now, I've been managing mine. Mine is 792 now. That's the highest it's ever been. I'm mm -hmm. trying to get it up to over 800. <laughs> because what's so interesting when you look at it and you start studying it, when you get one 30-day late, it drops you like 50 points. See, it now, I don't incredible. even know. I just know I paid off my student loans last month so oh, <laughs> or fantastic. two months ago. Um, so I saw my credit score rise when I did that and, and paid off a credit card. But it is hard. I mean, you know, life happens, whether you have a medical emergency or your kids need something uh, life happens and so being prepared for it is the best thing we can do to shield ourselves against you know life happening and not having to take out credit and overspend it's tough well my mother used to have a saying and we'll try to get back to the index <laughs> <laughs> there's always something that was her favorite saying there's always something and she would always be borrowing money for me for that always something and at first i wouldn't have her to pay it back but yeah. then i called i had a mommy fund so oh. i loan her money she'd pay me back and then she'd borrow back and i loan her and pay me and it went like that and i finally i wrote her a letter and i thought she was going to disown me it yeah. said you know there's always going to be something so why don't you save for it yeah i mean you don't I, know what it is i think so you make an, an important point yeah. i think that in communities of color my father was african-american we see more families doing that. So I'm the first in my family. Doing what? Loaning money to their family members. Okay. So the money you're loaning or giving to family members, you're not probably investing it. You're not building your own safety net. You're not maybe even buying your own home because you are diverting some of those funds. I mean, this is why the issue of opportunity is complex. We don't have a measurement in there for how many young people who are coming out of poverty are also supporting their parents or their grandparents, grandparents. but they're out there. Grandparents. When I was a Gates scholar, I certainly had um, peers who were, you know, we were getting these very robust scholarships and we were helping our parents. Yeah. It's hard to get ahead and build a life of security for yourself and your children if you're still helping the generation behind you, which is tough. You know, these are our family members. We want to be there for them. Okay. Let's go to education. Yeah. Because... For me, I've taught for 12 years of my life, 
and education turned out to be, and that's what my mother ended up doing. So it's critical, critical, critical for opportunity, as you've Absolutely. already mentioned. And you look at preschool enrollment, on-time high school graduation, and post-secondary completion. Yep, just three. Education. Correct. We look at the, the big three. Um, so the good news story here is high school graduation rates have improved um, pretty dramatically over the past 10 years. We're now at about 83% of um, young people who graduate within four years. There's definitely discrepancies depending on which community you're in, but it's a really important milestone for every young person to reach. So we work very closely with partners like the America's Promise Alliance, which uh, one of which they're big campaign goals have been to achieve a 90% high school graduation rate. And there's only one state, I believe, right now that has that. It's Iowa. Wow. They're well above 90%, farmers, actually. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, have our, we have a good friend um, who runs Des Moines Area Community College. And it takes those kinds of leaders um, to see change like that. You know, these are individuals. These are young people with different challenges and opportunities. So to get all of them moving towards that goal um, is, is difficult and why it, it takes national campaigns to get the messaging out and talk about solutions at scale. When we, with West Virginia Access to Higher Education, <clears throat> when we take kids to campuses and they see that they could go to college, their, their enrollment increased. They went to school more often and they got mm -hmm. better grades because they had hope. Absolutely. Oh. It's incredible. So I brought my 13-year-old also when we dropped off my 19-year-old at college two days ago because I wanted him to see this experience, right. to help his brother move in, to look at all these young people, <clears throat> excuse me, and for him to see that can be his future too. I also told him recently that he has a college fund. And that's important because we know that, young, that children who have college funds in their own name are three times more likely, children in poverty, of college funds in their own name are three times more likely to go to college and four times more likely to finish. finish. There is a bill sponsored by Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Chris Coons, a bipartisan bill called the American Dream Accounts Act that would provide children's savings accounts. So children in poverty could get savings accounts and provide financial education to increase their chances of going to college. These are the kinds of very common sense bipartisan solutions that require financial institutions, so private sector organizations, nonprofit organizations, educators, and parents that all work together to achieve these kinds of outcomes for young people. Well, I've set up for my will and my living, my trust, that the money would go to my grandkids for them to go to college. But what I, I have told the parents, but I haven't told the grandchildren, so you just told me what i got to do here. I tell okay. them, yeah, I don't want them to take advantage of it, but I say, you know, your father and I are investing in you now, and we have been for five years, because we expect this of you, we believe that you are capable of this, whether it's whatever degree you get, that, you know, we believe that you are capable and have the potential to succeed beyond high school. Preschool enrollment, what is that like? How do you measure that? So we look at the, the percentage of three and four year olds four-year-olds, excuse me, who are enrolled in preschool. That's something that D.C. has uh, done well because there's universal preschool. Um, but it's, you know, this is because we know from a lot of early childhood education and early child development research how important it is for children at three and four to really be prepared to go to kindergarten mm -hmm. and to be reaching some of those important benchmarks like reading by third grade and, and that sort of thing. So it's important that that process starts early. 
All right, now we're going to go to the community. There's some interesting community, yeah. there. And I really want to get to your goals. So group membership, volunteerism, disconnected youth, community safety, access to health care, access to healthy foods. Wow. So how do you measure this group volunteerism? How do you measure that? So there's publicly available data out there that asks people if they belong to a group. So maybe a, a Rotary Club or any of those traditional membership groups that you participate in. And so we get that publicly available data to see how many people say they are doing that. Volunteerism, I believe it's the data is anybody who's volunteered within the past year at all. So helped your neighbor, it's self-reported, so it's okay. could, it's up into interpretation. But those two are important because they speak to people's involvement in community and the social capital that they are building. This is, I think, the heart of the Opportunity Index. You know, the indicators in, edu- in, a, in the economy dimension and the education indicators are some in some ways obvious, but the community piece is special because it gets to something a little more nuanced, which is how much people are invested in the community and their neighbors. Are they volunteering? Are they joining things, Um, especially for young adults? We did a research paper a few years ago on the relationship between disconnected youth, those are 16 to 24 year olds who are not in school and not working, and volunteerism. And we found that young people who were volunteering were three times less likely to be uh, disconnected. So. It, 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 it's sort of like a, it feels very common sense, but when you look at the data, it's fascinating and how important that social capital is to opportunity. Well, access to health care and access to healthy foods. Yeah, so we, uh, again, it's publicly available data and it looks at the percentage of supermarkets and grocery stores in a community and also for the doctors, the percentage of primary care physicians. Um, generally like obstetrician gynecologists in a community as well. And those two are interesting because the access to doctors has has not improved. People just are further and further away from their health care. And I, I don't think it has anything to do, uh, we don't have any data that tells us it has anything to do with health insurance. We're just talking, to, we're looking at the presence where these general practitioners are in relation to where people live. And some of this, I should say, is changing. We'd love to come back and talk about the 2017 Opportunity Index because some of the data and the way it's collected publicly has changed. So we're going to see some different trends this year. So you want to come back next Thursday or Thursday after next? We'll come back in December and talk about the latest index. Got it. And I'm sure Pat will have that down, too. So we'll get you back in December. Um, the re- Vincent Gray, who's a council member for Ward 7, used to be the mayor, has some bills in place for Ward 7 and 8 to build a hospital in Ward 8 and build a couple of grocery stores, in, one in Ward 7 and one in Ward 8, because the, the data says that those are food deserts. Mm-hmm. And I did testify in front of him and some other council members to look at, in both cases, cooperatives because food co-ops work really well and they work mm-hmm. better for particularly what well, co-ops work really better for social capital yep. and financial so when you start talking about economy and community the co-ops have come out and there's lots of research on that so we will we'll try to get you some of that information and uh, he was quite interested community safety and then we're going to move to your goals Community safety, so that looks at the rate of violent crime. And this is, I think, a statistic that surprises people. Over the past six years of the index, 
violent crime has actually decreased 15%. Um, it's one of the reasons overall the nation's opportunity score has improved because uh, certainly there are some communities that are living with I don't hear about extraordinarily this. high levels of I violence. I don't hear about Chicago. And yeah, and I think, you know, this yeah. is like there are two messages here, right, that, you know, overall violent crime has decreased in the country. That is just a fact. Okay. Certain communities certainly are experiencing high rates of violent crime, but it is misleading to say that overall, you know, the country is, is, more, is more violent. All right, we're going to take our next break. And then we're going to come back and talk about your goals and your principles. And this is our final break. Okay. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. Information is power. That's why WL is a great sponsor and partner with us because what the cooperative does is at the heart of the cooperative is education, giving people the information they need to improve their financial, social, physical well-being. And National Cooperative Bank is right in the middle of doing that, particularly in lower economic communities. Our guest today is Monique Reiser, who's the Executive Director of Opportunity Nation, and we had a lot of things that I wanted to cover today. We won't get to all of them, but let's go to your goals and your principles. Yeah, so as I was learning more about co-ops when you invited me to the show, I realized that it was sort of an epiphany, actually, on the metro up here, that the way that co-ops are, are the values and the way they work. Um, could be applied to the way we think about young people and children in this country. And I, I just want to take a quick step back. The reason we think and talk about young people so much when we talk about access to opportunity is because in the Opportunity Index, the Disconnected Youth Indicator, the rate of 16 to 24-year-olds who are not in school and not working, is the driver opportunity scores. So the higher the rate of disconnected youth, the lower an opportunity score. That, that gave us some focus as a campaign on a very complex issue. So we know, as, as others do, and we have data to show, that if you invest in children and young adults, they can get the right start in life to succeed for themselves and their families. And to do that, we need to think of our nation's children and young adults as our collective co-op. We all have to be invested in and working towards the successful launching of an adult. It, it is certainly parents are critical. They're home and they're hopefully home every day. Many young people don't have that. But getting a young person successfully launched into adulthood, however we define that, it takes everybody. Yep. Educators, coaches, faith-based leaders, it just takes all parts of a community, uh, especially for those children who have incredible challenges. So I guess my one message for your audience today would, for those who believe in the co-op idea, 
you sound like you're already primed to get involved and, and work towards having a successful co-op in young adults. So that was one thing I wanted to share. But regards to our goals and solutions. Uh, well, I really like that. So <laughs> okay. I wrote it down. That's, okay. that's great. Okay. So last year in September, we put together a big, bold plan called Our Opportunity Nation. We worked with uh, a bipartisan leaders, John Bridgeland, who's a former domestic policy advisor to President Bush and former domestic policy advisor to President Clinton, Bruce Reed, and our coalition of 350 organizations to put together six major goals for the country that really looks at sort of the life cycle of children um, into adulthood. And these goals, six goals, had to fulfill three principles. They had, each of these goals had some coalition supporting them. So it wasn't a lone individual with a wild idea. It was an idea that had a coalition of existing support. Two, that they were bipartisan. That is, it seems more difficult than ever, but it is, uh, bipartisanship does still exist, and these ideas have bipartisan support in some way. And finally, that these are evidence-based. So we want to look at policies and goals and practices that we know work. So with those three principles in mind, we uh, rolled out these six big goals for the country over the next 10 years that we call Opportunity Millennium Goals. No child hungry or homeless by 2025, achieving a 90% high school graduation rate by 2020, and turning around low-performing schools. What would that amount? 95%? 90% high school graduation rate. 90%. Okay. Double the number of post-secondary degrees, certificates, and credentials by 2025. Again, going back to that economic imperative that more people have advanced education. Reducing unemployment to 5% for all. So while the nation's unemployment rate is below 5%, certain communities, Vernon, you probably know this well, uh, particularly African-American men, it's still way too high. And for young people, uh, young adults who are getting their first jobs, it's double the national rate. So getting unemployment down for everybody is one of our, our goals. The fourth uh, the fifth goal is to re-engage a million opportunities each year. Those are the 16 to 24-year-olds not connected to school or work. Getting them re-engaged in the community is really important. It costs $93 billion a year uh, for all these uh, this 5 million young people who aren't in school or working. So you want, you want to get we 1 million of them engaged? A year, engaged. yeah. They're coming in and out of the system, and about half of those 5 million young people live in poverty. So... Poverty is a really key driver here. And the final goal is around a call to national service, that we'd have a million Americans serving their country in some way because it's important to the social fabric of our country. We are increasingly disconnected from one another. It builds empathy to work in communities that are unlike yours. I think the military is a really good example of that, of how people come from all walks of life and unite around a goal. We can do that uh, um, through forms of national service for those whom the military is not accessible or desirable. So those are our six goals, and we spent this year building support for these goals. We've asked coalition members to sign on and say we support this idea of bipartisanship and these goals for the country. We have about 140 coalition members who have done that, and we'll be working on that for the next 10 years at least. So I had wanted to spend time telling you why the number seven goal yes. is increasing worker cooperatives. 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear it. We don't, we don't, well, see, do we have, yeah, we have enough time. The values of a cooperative is to provide service, responsibility. Well, the values of a cooperative are self-help, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, solidarity. And in, in the tradition of the founders of cooperatives, it's honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. Mm -hmm. So that fits a lot of what you're talking about. And then when you look at the principles of, of a cooperative, I can get this to work, volunteer and open membership for everybody, doesn't make any difference, democratic member control, so it's one member, one vote. It is economic participation. It normally some money in and you get money back when there's a dividend, when there's a surplus or profit, and that's how financial wealth gets created. The fifth one, I'm forgetting the fourth one. I'll come back to it. The fifth one is education, and that's mm -hmm. the heart of it, mm -hmm. is getting people educated. So I have, I have seniors in a housing co-op. At one point, at best, they have a high school de degree, but they learn how to run a business. They mm -hmm. learn how to run their housing co-op. And when we talk about self-responsibility and holding each other accountable, the seniors do it. And they do it extremely well. The sixth one is concern for community is the seventh one. Oh, the sixth one is cooperation among co-ops. So you get this uh, coalition support. Yep. Okay. Yep. I've got to find number four and come back to it. But to, when you look at what this co-op does in a worker cooperative, People come together to create a co-op. Any business you can think of could be a worker cooperative. Any business. So you get worker cooperatives, and the other one is consumer co-ops, and those are the kind of co-ops that the people that uses the products or services, they own the business. And that's housing co-ops, that's credit unions. There's a consumer cooperative, a um, health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, where the patients own it. Mm -hmm. So it's a patient-centric health care center. Um, then you have on both ends of farmers and artists, you have purchasing co-ops and marketing co-ops that folks will come together and buy whatever they need so they can get a better product at a lower price. And then they'll end up creating another co-op where they sell and artists, artists will come together and buy a warehouse, say, together. And then they'll divvy up that warehouse space and they come and create whatever they create. Okay, and then they can also use that same warehouse to have demonstrations or a sale, or they can have an, a storefront to sell their goods. So they individually may not have the money or the expertise to do these things, but coming together, they can, they can get these things together. And so learning how, and this is why the education is so important, is learning how to solve problems together. Yes. And there's going to be problems. The Bible says when two or more are gathered, God is there also, and I got. The reason is because if there's two or more, there are going <laughs> to be problems. <laughs> okay? And you need God. <laughs> or you need to learn how to solve these problems without a yeah. gun. We don't need to go to yeah. OK Corral to figure out how to solve a problem. And this is why co-ops really work. And so people get social wealth. They learn how to work together. They learn how to work with the government entities. And they get financial wealth when, there's, when there are dividends that the money is not taken away out of the community for a shareholder who may live in another state or another country, and the money goes out of the neighborhood. So the neighborhood, as you know, in economics, the more it turns in the neighborhood, the, the more value that the neighborhood gets and that people have more. Mm -hmm. So I'm wanting you to put number seven down here. <laughs> so, Vernon, we've got, we've got these six established, but I would say 
those involved with co-ops could certainly help with, it uh, looks like all of these goals from what I've heard from you and the principles around co-ops, and I'm not super familiar with them, you're educating me as we go, I think lend themselves to, the, to what you know, we're trying to achieve here, which is really a collective investment and responsibility for the outcomes of, of children and, the, and youth in this country. Do you like what you're doing? I love what I'm doing. I have a fantastic team, wonderful partners and investors and coalition members who want to make a difference. You got 30 seconds. What do you want to leave the audience with besides you're coming back in December? I'm coming back to talk about the next index, uh, but I would say get involved. You know, visit our website, opportunitynation.org. Check out your score on opportunityindex.org and see how community is doing and see how you can help. Thank you. Thank you very much. And everybody have a great week and live cooperatively. Thank you.